Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, my guest is Dr. Susan Burns, professor of history and East Asian languages and civilizations at the University of Chicago. Dr. Burns is the author recently of The Japanese Patent Medicine Trade in East Asia, Women's Medicines and the Tensions of Empire in Gender, Health, and History in East Asia, edited by Izumi Nakayama and Angela Long published by Hong Kong University Press in 2017. Dr. Burns, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to join the podcast. You have this forthcoming book, Kingdom of the Sick, Leprosy, Citizenship in Japan, looking at leprosy in particular, but also the history of disease in Japan. And so much of your work has looked at Japan's long 19th century. So I'm curious, could you tell us about this work on leprosy that you're doing? And what position does the Meiji Restoration play in this history of disease in Japan? That's a great question. So leprosy, since about the year 2000, has become a really big human rights issue in Japan, primarily because of the very long history of requiring people with leprosy to be quarantined. And much of the literature being written in Japan on this issue sort of starts with the first national law, which was promulgated in 1907. And so the sort of master narrative that has emerged over the last two decades sort of focuses on the role of the modern state in creating stigma of leprosy and enforcing this requirement that people with leprosy be confined in leprosy sanitarium or leprosaria, as they're often termed. And in my book, I became aware quite early on that, in fact, there was a long history of stigma and that leprosy kind of came to sort of national consciousness in the 1870s in the aftermath of the Meiji Restoration long before the state itself was interested in leprosy as a public health issue. So in the early years after the restoration, the Meiji government was primarily concerned with acute infectious diseases like cholera, typhoid, typhus, and leprosy as a a chronic disease, generally understood to be a hereditary disease in this period. You know, it wasn't a big public health concern. So by sort of taking up this transition from the early modern period over the 1868 divide, I was able to see, I think, something quite new about leprosy and who were the actors or agents in sort of transforming it into a public health issue. So if I could back up a little bit, it's quite clear that leprosy became an issue in the medieval period. People with leprosy were classified as or one category of outcast people, and they were often sort of marginalized within medieval society. And then after the formation of the Tokugawa shogunate, we see that people with leprosy come to be incorporated into the early modern system of status. So they are, again, defined as a group of outcast people, which in this context comes to mean people who have officially recognized begging rights. And so there's also a kind of early modern process of spatial marginalization. So people with leprosy are confined in what are called leprosy huts or leper huts. 
or in leprosy villages. So there's some kind of variation based upon the domain and whether it's a urban versus rural setting. So we, we find a pattern of stigmatization of people with the disease and spatial segregation in the early modern period. So that's sort of the first part of my book. And then the second part comes to look at the post-Meiji Restoration period. And one of the first things that happens is that when the new Meiji government in 1871 issues the Emancipation Proclamation, which brings an end to heenin or outcast status at a status, the official begging rights that had sustained people with leprosy who were confined in either a leper hut or a leper village, these people, many of whom were disabled, were left without any means of support. And because this system of segregation then dissolved quite quickly, people with leprosy became newly visible because now they're begging in places where they didn't appear previously. So I think that's one moment when they sort of come into public visibility as they'd never been before. And then what happens is that you see new individuals becoming interested in the plight of people who suffered from leprosy. So in the early newspapers in Tokyo, certainly, but also in Osaka, in places like Sendai and Akita, new provincial or prefectural capitals, I should say, you see journalists sort of talking about the need to do something, that the plight of these people have to be addressed, and calling upon the Meiji government to do something to aid them. Then another one of the developments in this period is that foreign missionaries from Great Britain, from France, and then from the United States also take note of the difficulties of people who suffered from leprosy, many of whom are either on their own to safeguard the reputation of their families or because their families come to feel that they are a burden sort of force them out. So you see missionaries then involved in creating hospitals and other kinds of institutions to house people with leprosy. And then the third element is that the new emerging kind of modern medical marketplace also becomes interested in people who suffer from leprosy. And so we see new kinds of medical entrepreneurs many of whom are actually people who are trained in Kampo or uh, Sino-Japanese medicine, getting involved in selling what we would call patent drugs that they claim are effective for leprosy or creating new hospitals that offer inpatient treatment. So there's a variety of things that are happening in the 1870s and 1880s in sort of civil society that bring leprosy into the public sphere as it had never been before. You're talking about leprosy in the medieval period. I, I kept thinking about these scrolls of affliction that depict the different stages of karmic retribution. And, and you're talking about leprosy as, as a disease of karmic retribution. And then as you were saying, by the 1870s and, and 1880s, we get to more kind of germ theory understandings of disease. Does that impact the government's reaction to these diseased bodies? Well, I think in terms of medical discourse, there's actually three moments. And one is indeed the medieval understanding of leprosy, or lie, or libio, as it was termed in Japanese, as a karmic retribution disease, or also a, a heavenly retribution disease. 
you know, which sort of reflects the rise of Neo-Confucian discourse. But then in the early modern period, you see its redefinition as a bad blood disease, as a disease that, you know, sort of originates in blood or blood key, as it was understood in Sino-Japanese medicine, so that it is arises when blood becomes hot and stagnant, when it ceases to flow through the various vessels of the body. And the key thing about this new medicalized understanding of leprosy is that once it's thought of as a bad blood disease, it is understood to be something that then can be transmitted from parent to child. And so this is sort of the moment when the idea of leprosy as a hereditary disease really takes hold in Japanese society. And so in the medieval period, under the idea of karmic retribution, individuals were stigmatized. But then under this idea of of leprosy as a bad blood disease, it comes to be defined as a disease of the lineage. And so even people who, you know, were not infected, if they had somebody within their lineage who was infected, you know, the stigma became much wider. And so it's kind of in relation to this that you have kind of new taboos against marrying people who come from a family where someone has the disease. So it becomes sort of newly stigmatized in relation to this new medicalized understanding of the disease. Now, because it's understood as hereditary, and and in fact, the pattern of infection that everybody who's sort of talking about leprosy takes note of, that it often appeared within familial groups, not by casual contact. And this does indeed reflect what we know about the sort of modern epidemiology of leprosy, that you don't easily catch it. So in the period of after the Meiji Restoration, you know, the idea that it is hereditary is not easily sort of overcome. Hansen, the Norwegian scientist who discovers the mycobacterium that causes leprosy, M. lepra, it's sort of a sensation, and yet there's a great deal of resistance to the idea that leprosy is infectious, not only in Japan, but really globally. And that is because of the peculiar way in which the disease works and that you can have, you know, long-term, sustained and intimate contact with a sufferer and not be infected. So, you know, there's a great deal of debate in Japan in the 1870s and really well into the 20th century about whether there's something else going on, whether it is an infectious disease in the way that tuberculosis, for example, is. At the risk of eliciting a collective groan from the listeners, uh, when you're talking about institutionalization and the state gaze of disease, it brings to mind you know, Foucault's birth of the clinic. So did you find similarities? Is this a, an example of institutionalized power or were you resisting that comparison to Foucault? You know, I think I am resisting it. I think there's a number of distinct moments. So one of these sort of first moments in the modern period is a kind of new confidence on the part of many Japanese doctors that leprosy can be cured. And so we see in the 1880s and 1890s a kind of real confidence on the part 
of a group of doctors in Japan uh, based in Tokyo. The most famous figure is a guy named Goto Masafumi and his son, whose name is Goto Masanao. Masafumi is a, a compo doctor and he develops a whole array of proprietary medicines and they are really quite effective in relieving the symptoms of leprosy. And he gains an international reputation for being able to treat leprosy effectively. And based upon this, his son is hired by the Bureau of Health in Hawaii. He attracts patients from Hawaii and the West Coast of the United States and from China who come to Tokyo to seek treatment. And so there's a a real confidence and a kind of celebration of Goto Masafumi and his imitators, a whole slew of them who are establishing private leprosy clinics in Tokyo. So there's that moment. And then there is a kind of growing awareness around the turn of the century that while these proprietary medicines can relieve the symptoms of leprosy, it is not a cure. And that's when, you know, I think Japan, like other countries around the world become sort of infected with what has been called leprophobia. And there's a sort of new call on certain figures within the Japanese parliament, the diet, to confine sufferers of leprosy. Now, what's interesting here is that while you have certain figures within the the diet calling for the confinement of all sufferers of leprosy, People within the Bureau of Health in the Home Ministry don't buy into this kind of hysteria. And instead, they are concerned with what we're sort of, we're often called wandering lepers. And I want to put this in scare quotes. I don't believe we should ever reduce people to their disease. So I'm using leper in the historical sense in which it was used in this period. So the figures within the Bureau of Health think that this should be treated not as a public health issue, but as an issue of poverty and poverty relief. So the first law, the one that was promulgated in 1907, called for the creation of leprosy institutions to aid impoverished people with leprosy. And so there's actually quite a strenuous process to determine whether people had any other means of support. And if they did, they were not subject to confinement. It was only those who were truly in desperate straits that became the objects of this 1907 law, which created these regional institutions to house impoverished leprosy sufferers. And there are five of these. They were public institutions paid for by groups of prefectures that were sort of joined together. So there are five so-called zones, and each one of these zones had their own institution. And that's really the state of things until 1931, when the institutions, there's a new law, or I should say a revision of the 1907 law, which opens up these institutions to all sufferers of leprosy. Although the law, it said that people who were a threat to public health could be confined coercively, but it's clear that the people who were involved in developing the law felt that 
people would step forward for voluntary institutionalization based upon the possibility of treatment and support. So I don't think it neatly fits the Foucauldian model. You were talking about these institutions and these hospitals that are erected around Tokyo and around Japan. And I understand that this led you into geomapping, and, and this is something you've even brought into your classroom now. So could you tell us about this geomapping project that you're doing and how you're using it in your class? Sure. So when I discovered the large number of private leprosy hospitals that were being created, uh, the first one is in the late 1870s and then into the 1880s and 90s, I was quite interested in the question of where in Tokyo, these institutions were located. And as you and many of your listeners probably know, Tokyo was destroyed in 1923 with the Great Kanto earthquake and then with the bombing in 1945. So just by looking at the addresses of these institutions, it's very hard to sort of figure out where they actually were. And so that got me interested in the question of mapping them. And so I took a couple of courses on ArcGIS, and I was able to map these 15 or so leprosy hospitals. And I was quite intrigued by the fact that they were in some of the most densely populated parts of Tokyo. They were often near streetcar stops. One was actually quite close to the Imperial Palace. So it's not what I expected. You know, I thought they'd be in outlying parts of the city. So that got me thinking about where other medical institutions in this early post-restoration period were located. And we see a whole slew of hospitals being established. It's one of these kind of new modern institutions that is created in relation to the government program of medical modernization and what we call the, the new medical marketplace. So then I charted syphilis hospitals and clinics, new psychiatric hospitals or asylum, as they were called in those years. Then I mapped TB hospitals and clinics. And now I'm working on quarantine hospitals that were established during periods of cholera epidemic. So I became quite enthusiastic about how ArcGIS could become you know, a mode of analysis as well as a way of sort of providing visualization of the results of my analysis. And I have taught a course on the history of Tokyo several times. I actually call it the history of Edo Tokyo because we started in the early modern period. So the last time I taught the course, I devoted four sessions to instructing students on sort of basic ArcGIS skills in our computer lab. And then I kind of encouraged them, or I should say required them, to develop their own projects that had to incorporate maps that they had created in ArcGIS. And the students did a fantastic job producing these really rich projects that showed me aspects of the city of Tokyo that I hadn't been aware of. So it, I, I found that it was a great way of getting the students to engage with the cityscape and its materiality rather than sort of the idea of Tokyo.
curious where all of these institutions were located. You said they were interspersed with the city and certainly not on the outskirts where, you know, in North American context, for example, we'd expect asylums to be kind of off out in the middle of nowhere. I should say that the asylums were actually the outlier in my study because whether TB, syphilis, and of course the leprosy hospitals, all of those tended to be located within the business districts of the city. But the outlier were actually the early psychiatric hospitals. And these indeed tended to be in suburban areas, the sort of what were village areas that would later come to be incorporated within the city. And I think I sort of thought about this for quite a while. I I think it is because, you know, the crime that was associated most closely with the mentally ill was actually arson. And as you probably know, and I think many of your listeners know, Tokyo as a city, or well, Edo as a city that was largely constructed of wood, had historically been subject to a number of extremely damaging fires. And so I think this idea that the mentally ill were prone to arson meant that the directors of these institutions were not keen to establish them in densely populated areas of the city. So those institutions were sort of outliers in that they did indeed tend to be outside the city proper. And you mentioned arson in Edo, and I I was reminded of the punishment for arson was burning at the stake. And and that would happen at these execution grounds like Suzugamori or Kozukapara in Edo. But those areas are kind of marginalized in the city because of maybe ideas of karmic retribution and pollution of death. That doesn't happen in the case of these other hospitals then. Yeah, I mean, I was really quite intrigued. You know, my first case study was leprosy, and I was really surprised. But I I guess I would say that, you know, because by probably the late 18th, early 19th century, you know, this idea of leprosy as a hereditary disease had really taken hold, that stigma of karmic retribution you know, wasn't as potent as it had been in the medieval period. And so, you know, I think the way in which the stigma of leprosy operated is that people were not necessarily concerned about casual contact. It was marriage, for example, that was a problem, marrying into a lineage. So we see even, you know, there's a famous conference in 1919 that brings together the directors of the early public sanitaria, people within the Bureau of Health, and the foreigners who headed up the missionary endeavors for housing people with leprosy. And interestingly, all of the foreign missionaries, Christian and Catholic missionaries, they called for laws forbidding marriage between healthy people and people with leprosy. So they are still very much within this idea that leprosy is a hereditary disease. On the other hand, the Japanese involved with public health policy toward leprosy, they regard it as an infectious disease, and they are not interested in putting these kinds of uh, laws into place. So, you know, I I was quite interested to sort of read against the grain of the the Japanese language historiography on leprosy, which I think has missed some of the interesting complications 
of this particular story. Another project I understand you've been working on is Gender and Law in the Japanese Imperium. Is there a gendered aspect to leprosy treatment? Yes. You know, I think of myself as a social historian of medicine and public health with a deep interest in gender and sexuality. One of the themes that's running through my book on leprosy is the policy of sterilization that was widely used within Japan's leprosy sanitaria. And the early public sanitaria at the point of origin had a policy of sexual segregation. And this, I think, reflected to some degree this concern about the well-recognized pattern of parent-to-child infection. So really from the point at which they were established, the public sanitaria had in place this idea of sexual segregation. And the institutions, I argue, were actually organized around this. So we often see the, in fact, in every case, we see the male dormitories and the female dormitories situated apart and generally with some kind of barrier. In one case, it was an actual guardhouse, but in other cases, it's sort of the the shared facilities, the place where people cooked and ate, the recreation area that those would be situated between as a kind of barrier. But very soon, the directors of these early institutions discovered that patients would have none of it. So patient resistance, an early focus of patient resistance, was on this policy of sexual segregation. So eventually, because of patient resistance, they begin to allow men and women to form relationships and form sexual relationships. And inevitably, the population of these institutions were mainly people between the ages of 18 and 40, so prime reproductive age. People began to have babies, and there was a great deal of concern about the health of these children. Initially, the director of the Tokyo Sanitarium tries to place children that were born to patients within the sanitaria into the poorhouse of Tokyo, which was actually charged with caring for abandoned children, but he found that they were neglected by the staff. And then he became interested in fostering them with people who were living in the agricultural villages nearby the the sanitarium, but he was unable to come up with funds that were traditionally a part of a fostering relationship. So eventually he hits upon the idea that male sterilization by the use of vasectomy, which was then a very new medical procedure, could be the key to allowing people to have sexual lives within the sanitarium, but not, you know, have children. So this doctor engages in a period of experimentation on animals to perfect the procedure, and then he asks for patient volunteers And in his account, people step forward and agree to undergo vasectomy as a test case. And over the course of, this happens in the 1910s uh, through 1945, male sterilization is widely used in all of Japan's leprosy sanitaria. There are several published studies and everything I've been able to discover in terms of documentary evidence is that it was based upon voluntary participation. There is, I think, evidence both ways about whether people were coerced or not. 
there are a number of people who undergo vasectomy who are not within an institution. So then it could only have been voluntary because there was no way to sort of coercively require people to undergo sterilization who were not in an institution. On the other hand, certainly within institutions, I think it comes to be taken that this is the ethical thing to do. And so certainly given that people may have felt a degree of psychological coercion. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.